I think some of the best-known lines of Christian poetry are probably these ones, which were written back in the 18th century by an Anglican minister named John Newton, and I'm sure that all of us here will recognize them. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. We often sing these familiar words on Sunday morning, perhaps at funeral services, but you may not know the powerful story of grace and forgiveness that lies behind them that brought these words into existence. Though the author of that famous song, John Newton, ended his life as a faithful minister of the gospel, he did not begin his life that way. After losing his mother to tuberculosis at the age of seven, John Newton rejected the Christian faith and instead pursued a life of unrestrained sin and immorality. The young age of 11, he began a career as a sailor on an English merchant ship, but soon lost his job because of unsettled behavior and impatience of restraint. He joined the British Navy, but couldn't handle the discipline and ended up going AWOL, a foolish decision that earned him a good flogging and a new home in jail. Eventually, he was able to convince his superiors to discharge him from the Navy in order to work on a slave ship. It was there in that horrific business of human trafficking that John Newton plunged even deeper into a lifestyle of sin, testifying later on in his life that he sinned with a high hand and made it his study to tempt and to seduce others. Went on to become a successful slave trader, the captain of several ships, making a living by kidnapping men and women and consigning them to either death or a life of hard labor in other parts of the world. John Newton was a rising star in one of the most wicked and depraved enterprises on earth, but one day during an enormous storm at sea, everything started to change. During that tremendous storm, Newton saw his, eye, his life flash before him. He was reminded of Bible verses that he had known from, a from the time he was a child. And by the grace of God, his hardened heart began to soften, although he would later say he was not a true believer at this time and continued on for several more years in the slave trade. Well, after leaving that life at sea for an office job in Liverpool, Newton came under the gospel preaching of the Wesley brothers and George Whitfield, and he was increasingly disgusted with his former way of life. Under deep conviction from the Word of God and the Spirit of God, he renounced the evils of slavery, he repented of his terrible sins, and he was ordained into the Anglican church where he faithfully served the Lord for the rest of his life. When he died in the year 1807, his tombstone was engraved with the following words that can still be seen today. John Newton, once an infidel and a libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. You know, this true story of John Newton is a wonderful testimony to God's amazing grace. And this morning, as we turn, and turn into the Word of God and look at the Word, we're going to see yet another real-life account of a wicked man who is gloriously hum humbled and rescued by the amazing grace of God. If you have your Bible with you this morning, and I hope that you did bring it, please turn with me to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel 4. I'll ask you to listen carefully as I read this entire chapter from God's holy and inspired word. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. 
How great are His signs. How mighty His wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy God. I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the Spirit of the Holy God is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw in their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a a tree in the midst of the earth and its height became great. The tree grew and became strong. Its top reached to heaven. It was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. The birds of the heaven lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree, lop off its branches, strip off its leaves, and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches but leave the stump of its roots in the earth bound with a a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet in the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beast in, in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets it over the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the Spirit of the Holy God is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while. His thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My Lord, may the dream and those who hate you and its interpret hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong, so that its top reached to the heaven, and it was visible to the ends of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heaven lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven, your dominion to the ends of the earth. Because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field, till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High which has come upon my lord the king, that you shall be driven from among men, your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you will be wet with the dew of heaven. Seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules over the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will. 
And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom is departed from you. You shall be driven from among men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. The end of the days I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. My reason returned to me. I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever, for His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to His will among the host of heaven, the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay His hand or say to Him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right, his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. The word of the Lord. As we dig into this text this morning and consider its meaning and implications for our lives here and now in the 21st century, we're going to discover a great deal of truth about the doctrine of repentance through the example of this ancient king named Nebuchadnezzar. Repentance is an important word. It's a biblical word. It's one of the most vital doctrines of the Christian faith because of its close and central connection to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But sadly, this Christian and biblical doctrine of repentance has become one of the most neglected doctrines in the modern church. And so this morning, with God's help, we are going to seek to understand the anatomy of repentance as revealed to us in Holy Scripture, considering this morning the story of Nebuchadnezzar, the precursors to repentance, the process of repentance, and the proof of repentance. The precursors, the process, and the proof. The first three chapters of the book of Daniel we've already considered in previous weeks were presumably written by Daniel himself as he looked back over his life in Babylon and as he traced the sovereign hand of God through a lifetime of faithful ministry. In chapters 1 to 3, Daniel is the, is the narrator of the story. But as we round the bend and come into chapter 4, we realize that the voice that is speaking to us here has switched from that of Daniel to that of King Nebuchadnezzar. This sudden change of voices comes as a surprise because now it's not the hero of the story who's speaking and writing to us. It is the villain who's speaking. And not only that, he is speaking and he is writing to us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. 
So it's quite an amazing thing to ponder, brothers and sisters, that God in his mysterious providence and grace sees fit to include a very unlikely man among the other authors of Scripture. Not a pious Jew, but a pagan king. It's a helpful reminder to me, and I hope to all of us, that nobody is beyond the reach of God's sovereign grace, not even this villainous and evil king named Nebuchadnezzar. God can save anyone He wants, and He can and does, as Ezekiel tells us, take the dead heart of stone, which is ours by virtue of the fallen human nature, and turn it into a heart of flesh that is soft and responsive to the things of God. Daniel 4 is truly a remarkable chapter in God's Word, what we'd probably call today a personal testimony of someone who has been deeply touched by God's amazing grace, someone who has been called effectually and irresistibly into a saving relationship with the true and living God. This chapter preserves for us the words of King Nebuchadnezzar to the various peoples and nations of the earth in the form of an open letter, explaining to them openly and honestly what God has done in his life and giving glory to the only God who is able to humble and save the most improbable and the most hard-hearted of sinners. We dive into this personal testimony from King Nebuchadnezzar. Let's skip over the first few verses for the time being and begin in verses 4-27 to as the king recounts for us the details of his conversion and gives valuable insight into the precursors of repentance. In other words, the events and the influences which led up to his renunciation of sin. The first precursor to repentance that I draw your attention to this morning is the Word of God. And the role that it played in leading this arrogant, self-important man to genuine humility and sorrow over sin. The heart of Nebuchadnezzar's testimony is yet another dream that deeply troubles and disturbs him just as the first dream did back in chapter 2. Now a few weeks ago I explained that in the old covenant era before the word of God had been fully given to us in its final written form, God sometimes spoke and revealed his truth through dreams and through visions. We see numerous examples of this throughout Scripture. In the case of this pagan ruler named Nebuchadnezzar, God chose to speak and to reveal his truth through the medium of dreams. Back in chapter 2, it was a dream about a statue. Here in chapter 4, it's a dream about a tree. Two different dreams that are likely separated by a couple decades of time, but yet two dreams that are intimately related to one another in their meaning and significance. Back in chapter 2, you'll recall that the dream was about a statue. It was a warning from God that the Babylonian Empire would not last forever, that the golden head of Babylon would eventually be replaced by the silver torso, and then by the, the bronze thighs, and then by the iron legs and the clay feet. And through that dream, God was making the point, He is sovereign over the kingdoms of this world. His kingdom will indeed triumph over them all. His kingdom will endure victoriously when all of the other kingdoms and empires have long since vanished. God speaks a word of warning to Nebuchadnezzar at the beginning of Daniel's ministry, but instead of humbling himself and heeding God's rebuke, the king instead tries to counteract the dream by building a golden statue in his own honor by commanding the peoples and nations and languages to bow down to it in worship. Here is a man who has heard the word of God through Daniel the prophet. It's a man who has seen the mighty hand of God through the salvation of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But this first warning from the Lord has fallen on deaf ears. It has not brought Nebuchadnezzar to his knees in genuine repentance and faith. 
God had graciously warned the king he could have rightly left Nebuchadnezzar to the just consequences of his own pride. But remarkably, we learn here in chapter 4 that God chose to speak a second time to this man, once again using the medium of a dream. That first dream back in chapter 2 focused on empires and kingdoms. This second dream in chapter 4 is far more personal in nature as the Lord zeroes in on Nebuchadnezzar himself and not merely on the mighty empire he was called to lead. And this second dream, which is described here in some detail, tells the story of a great and glorious tree that is suddenly ordered by the angel to be dropped down, chopped down and left as a pitiful stump. A mighty tree that is just a mournful shadow of what it once was at the height of its glory when all of the birds of the heavens took refuge in its branches and leaves. Friends, I don't think you need to be an astrologer or magician or Chaldean to discern this is a very ominous and threatening message from the Lord. But yet there's a glimmer of hope in this dream, for we're told in verse 15 that the stump and the roots of the tree are to be left intact in the ground and that a metal band is to be put around the stump. If you've ever cut down a tree in your backyard, you'll certainly know that green shoots love to come up out of the stump that looks old and dead. I'm inclined to think here, friends, that Nebuchadnezzar had a fairly good idea of what this dream was all about even before he went through the motions of calling his advisors to give the interpretation. This is clearly a second warning from the Lord. The glory of earthly kings and kingdoms is temporary. God alone has the authority to raise kings up and to cut them down. Nebuchadnezzar can either humble himself under the sovereign authority of God or else he can be humbled and cut down to size. And once again, this is a gracious and timely word from the Lord meant to bring him to a place of true humility and repentance. Brothers and sisters, the first precursor to true repentance is always the word of God. I cannot emphasize that strongly enough this morning. In the Old Covenant context of this book, God chose to reveal His Word through dreams and through visions and through His servants, the prophets. But now in the fullness of time, God has spoken fully and finally and infallibly through His written Word, a collection of 66 inspired books that we know today as the Bible. And friends, the Bible you are holding in your hands this morning contains God's full and final word to you and to all of humanity. Either humble yourself under the authority of King Jesus or else be humbled. Either put yourself under the authority of the one who created you or else rebel against him and spend eternity under his righteous wrath. The Bible contains everything we need to know about God's gracious plan of salvation. It is, as we read in 2 Timothy 2.15, able to make us wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul says the same thing in Romans 10 where he writes that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Now it's true, brothers and sisters, the Bible had not yet been fully written by the time of Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar, but even at at this time in history, God had revealed His moral law to the Jewish nation. He had commanded them to write that law down, to pass it from generation to generation. The law of God which was revealed at Sinai to Moses, recorded in Genesis through Deuteronomy, tells in no uncertain terms the glory of God and the depravity of man. It shows how we ended up in our present state of separation from God. It reveals the standard of God's holiness without which no one will see the Lord. 
And so whenever we open our Bibles and we read the law and the Ten Commandments, we the readers are brought to see how terribly short we fall of God's holy standard, how hopeless we are of attaining salvation apart from God's regenerating grace. On the one hand, the law of God is glorious and beautiful because it reveals the perfection and the beauty of the Creator. On the other hand, the law of God is immensely distressing because it shows us that His standard of holiness is impossible for us to attain no matter how hard we try. You know something, friends? That's why the Lord gave His law to humanity in the first place. Not to cruelly taunt us, but rather to humble us into the very dust of the earth to drive out any thought that we can be saved through our own self-effort and to show us our desperate need for repentance. This function of the law in the life of the non-believer is stated in several places. For example, Romans 3 verse 20 where Paul says, By the works of the law no human being will be justified since through the law comes knowledge of sin. You see, friends, the law of God was not given to show us how wonderful we are as human beings, but rather to show us how sinful we are and thus to drive us in despair toward the cross of Jesus Christ where divine justice and divine mercy meet. You see, friends, even though you and I and Nebuchadnezzar are unable to keep the law of God, God in His mercy and grace looked down on our hopeless, sinful condition and He did something about it. In the fullness of time, the Father sent His Son into our broken world to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. The Lord Jesus did not come into the world to abolish the law. Rather, He came to fulfill the law. To keep its demands and its stipulations perfectly. The Bible tells us that Jesus shared our humanity, that He lived a perfect and sinless life, something that you and I in our fallen sin nature have utterly failed to do. And then after living that sinless life on our behalf, Jesus went resolutely to the cross to suffer and to die there in the place of anyone and everyone who would ever repent of sin and believe in the gospel of grace. For as the Scriptures tell us, He who knew no sin became sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. You know, friends, the only difference between us and King Nebuchadnezzar is that we are now looking backwards on that great atoning sacrifice, whereas Nebuchadnezzar was looking forward in time to the Savior who is yet to come. But when all is said and done, everyone will be saved precisely the same way by repentance of sin and through faith in God's gracious provision for sin through the sacrifice of His Son. Contrary to popular belief, the Old Testament saints were never saved by their strict adherence to the law of Moses. They were saved in their faith in the Messiah to come, just as we are saved by faith in the Messiah who has already come. Well, The first precursor to repentance is the Word of God. In Nebuchadnezzar's case, a dream that came by way of divine revelation, but for us today, the written and inspired Word of God. God has always used His Word to begin the process of repentance. He is still using that same Word today to till up the hardened soil of the human heart and to prepare the heart for salvation. You know something, friends? On that final day of judgment when all of humanity will stand before the great white throne, there will be no excuses. There will be no justifications for persisting in rebellion against God. For we are told in Romans 1, God has not merely given us His law in written form. He has inscribed it on the human heart. 
And so the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 2.14, For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. Every mouth will be stopped on the day of judgment, for the law of God has been written on the human heart. The mighty power of God is clearly revealed through the creation around us. Therefore, the author to the Hebrews warns us, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? First precursor to repentance is the Word of God. The second precursor God used to prepare Nebuchadnezzar's heart was a man named Daniel and his other three uh, three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. A few decades before this time, when Nebuchadnezzar besieged the city of Jerusalem and brought these four men back into Babylon, he saw them as conquered slaves and as political pawns, but God saw them differently. God saw these four young men as his specially chosen missionaries. Nebuchadnezzar thought he was bringing slaves back into Babylon. In reality, he was bringing God's ambassadors into his very own palace. And this is yet another expression of God's grace and kindness towards a very undeserving man. The God revealed in the Bible is a God who sends his ambassadors throughout the world. And this pattern of missionary sending is seen throughout the Scripture. We see it, for example, in the story of Naaman and the little servant girl who told him how he could be cleansed and healed. We see it in the story of Esther who shone brightly for God in Persia. We see it in the story of Paul the Apostle who once led his own jailer to faith in Christ and who preached the gospel to the Roman guards who had put him under arrest. Time and time again, God has raised up and sent out missionaries to shine the light of His gospel in the darkest corners of our world. And that's what's going on here in the story of Daniel and his friends. Nebuchadnezzar meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And he had sent Daniel into Babylon as his personal ambassador to the king. We know by this time in the narrative, Daniel had been a fixture in the king's palace for many years. He had shown himself to be a true ambassador of God. And that makes it all the more surprising here in the text that the king chooses to consult with the magicians and the astrologers and the enchanters before consulting with the true prophet of God. I mean, here's a guy who seeks help from the very same men who had once let him down and only goes to Daniel as the last resort. It goes to show, I think, the natural hardness of heart we human beings have towards the Lord, the stubborn, temper, stubborn tendency that we all have to seek help from every alternative source before turning to the true fount and source of wisdom. Twice already in this book, Nebuchadnezzar has verbally affirmed the power of God. He did it at the end of chapter 2. He did it a second time at the end of chapter 3. But even though he knows the power of God, even though he has witnessed God's power firsthand, he has still not repented of his sin. And it causes me to wonder whether the problem wasn't so much that he didn't know where to turn for the truth, but rather that he didn't want to hear the truth that he knew that Daniel would speak. 
Doesn't that reflect our own inclinations today, friends? Knowing that the answers to life's biggest questions are found in the Word of God, but not wanting to go there because we don't like what it says. We don't like the implications that God's revealed truth will have on our lives. Nebuchadnezzar, like so many other people in our world today, sought his answers from many different sources, but in the end he found that all of those wells and cisterns were useless and dry, just as dry as they were in chapter 2. You know, very likely the pagan advisors he consulted about this dream understood the general gist of what it meant, but were too afraid to tell the king the truth for fear that he would fly into a rage. Even Daniel, we observe in verse 19, was dismayed and alarmed when he heard the details of the dream. But unlike the Chaldeans and the astrologers, Daniel loved the Lord. Daniel loved this king far too much to tell him a lie, and this ought to be a model for all of us. Brothers and sisters, the message that God has given to us to share with this broken world is a great and a glorious message of forgiveness and grace. But alongside the good news of God's grace and love is some very bad news that God also expects us to share. You see, part of the message that we're called to preach is the bad news that all of us from the moment of conception are dead in trespasses and sins, unable to save ourselves. And that is not a message most people in the world want to hear. The natural man wants a message that will boost his ego and lift his spirit and inspire self-confidence, not a message that will humble him into the dust of the earth and send him running to Christ for refuge. Like it or not, Christians, that is what our gospel involves. It is a humbling message before it's an exalting message. It's an alarming message before it's a comforting message. It's a message that demands us to forsake our pride, to admit our own helplessness, to look at our true reflection through the mirror of God's holy word. That's why the gospel is so often the last resort. It humbles us. It wounds us before it exalts us and heals us. As Tim Keller has put it, the gospel is a message that shows that we are far more sinful than we ever could have imagined, but at the same time, far more loved and accepted than we ever could have dreamed. You know, I'm sure that Daniel was tempted to sugarcoat the message on this occasion, perhaps just to follow the lead of his colleagues, to tell the king that he really wasn't too sure what the dream meant. The truth of the matter is that Daniel loved Nebuchadnezzar too much to do that. He cared more about this man's soul than he did about his own comfort and security. And so rather than lying to the king and taking the easy way out, Daniel faithfully fulfills his missionary calling. He tells Nebuchadnezzar the truth of God's word, as painful as it is, as uncomfortable as it is. Look again with me at verse 27 in the text. Just consider the spirit-empowered boldness of Daniel in calling this man to repentance. Verse 27, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. This is courageous gospel ministry. Nebuchadnezzar is not all by himself in his need to repent. Repentance is the foundational need of every person in our world. It's the foundational need of every person in this room this morning. For without genuine repentance of sin, no one will enter the kingdom of God. 
Repentance was the message that John the Baptist preached. It was the first word that came out of Jesus' mouth during His ministry. It was the message the apostles preached. It is the message that we must preach. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out and that times of refreshing might come from the Lord. Brothers and sisters, I think you all know by now I believe strongly in the absolute sovereignty of God over salvation, but I believe just as strongly that our sovereign God uses means to accomplish His ends and that one of those God-ordained means for the salvation of the lost is the preaching of His Word. Just as Daniel was an ambassador for the Lord in his generation, so you and I are ambassadors for for Christ in our generation, in our city. God has raised us up for such a time as this. And in the light of that reality and truth, brothers and sisters, I hope and I pray that we, like our brother Daniel, will be loving enough and courageous enough to tell a new generation about sin, about the need for repentance, even as we tell them the truth about the grace and forgiveness and love of our God. Because a gospel that invites people to believe in Christ without calling them to repent of their sins is not the good news of the Bible. It is a half-baked message that will ultimately lead people into false assurance of faith and after that an eternity in hell. Our job, Christians, is to tell the truth. To tell the whole truth. To tell nothing but the truth. And to tell the truth in a spirit of love and grace. Precursors of true repentance are the Word of God and the Messenger of God empowered by the Spirit of God. But underlying both of these things is the incredible patience of our God in giving men and women an opportunity to repent and to enter into the kingdom. You'll notice, I hope, in this story that God was incredibly patient with King Nebuchadnezzar, giving him repeated warnings, giving him miraculous signs, sending him missionaries, giving Him an extended period of time, a marvelous testimony to the patience and grace of the Lord. God was patient in the Old Covenant, and God is patient with sinners still. For we read in the book of Second Peter that God delays the second coming of His Son so that more lost sheep can enter into the fold and be saved by the Good Shepherd. In the light of this reality, God's great patience, we ought to be all the more eager to share the good news of the gospel in the full confidence that our God will use it to till up the hardened soil of the human heart to prepare that soil for His grace to take root and to grow up and to bear much fruit for the glory of His name. We've seen so far the precursors to repentance. We move along now in our text to the process of repentance as modeled for us in verses 28 to 34. I think it's clear by now the ultimate barrier to Nebuchadnezzar's salvation was his own self-sufficiency and pride. God has already warned the king twice about this through two different dreams in their interpretation. Twelve months have now come and gone between Daniel's call to repentance and the next scene in verse 28, a full year, an extra year of God's patience and grace. But now in verse 29, we read that Nebuchadnezzar was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon and the king answered and said, Is this not great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? While those arrogant words were still on his mouth, the fulfillment of the dream suddenly comes upon him as this powerful and majestic tree is cut down to size, 
driven out into the field to act like a wild animal for seven years. At one moment, Nebuchadnezzar is strutting proudly on his roof, admiring the beautiful hanging gardens of Babylon, all of the great things that he felt that he had accomplished in his own strength. The next moment, he is out in the field, grazing like an animal, a man who has completely lost his dignity, not to mention his sanity. God gave the king 12 months to humble himself and repent of his pride. But when the king refused to do what Daniel said, God intervened directly in order to deal with his pride, rooting it out through extreme measures, depriving him of his sanity and his dignity. God's method in this particular situation might seem a little unusual to us, but the principle underlying these dramatic events ought to be very plain. God humbles sinners before He saves sinners. He humbles sinners before He saves them. And if we will not humble ourselves and repent, God will do whatever is necessary to accomplish His good and sovereign purpose in our lives, even if that process involves a great deal of pain. You know, friends, I don't think it's a coincidence that many people turn to Christ either during a time of personal crisis or shortly after a time of personal crisis. God often uses hard times and painful experiences to get our attention, sometimes pulling the rug out from under our feet in order to turn us around, to humble our pride, and to bring us safely into His kingdom. We see here in this text the example of Nebuchadnezzar. We might also think this morning of the Apostle Paul, who at the time of his conversion was on his way to kill and imprison Christians in Damascus when God knocked him down and blinded him and forcibly turned him in the opposite direction. One moment Paul is walking in rebellion to God. At the next moment he's walking in obedience to God. And the only thing that accounts for such a dramatic transformation is the sovereign grace of God which brings us supernaturally from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Friends, repentance is necessary for salvation, but it's often a very painful thing because it forces us to admit our own failure, to concede that we cannot fulfill what the law demands. We cannot earn our way into heaven. Let's also understand this this morning. Repentance is not possible apart from the grace of God. Study the Scriptures. You will discover repentance is described as a gift of God. A gift of God. Something that God grants to whomever He will. You can see that truth in Acts chapter 5. You can see it in 2 Timothy 2 verse 25. Romans 2 verse 4. We learn it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Repentance is an action that God enables by grace just as faith is something God enables by grace. These are not actions we are able to accomplish in our own strength or through our own effort. They are enabled by the Spirit of God. Now in some people like Nebuchadnezzar and the Apostle Paul, God's intervention will be very visible and pronounced in a moment of crisis. In many other cases, God's intervention will seem far more subdued. Everyone has a different testimony. Everyone has a different experience of being brought from one kingdom into the other. But you can be sure of this today, friends. Wherever we find a true repenting of sin, we will also find the ministry of the Holy Spirit because these two things always go together. If the Spirit of the living God lives in you, you will not be content to remain in your sin. And if you are content to remain in your sin, that is good evidence that the Spirit of God does not live in you. 
Now, that's not to say that once you become a Christian, you suddenly become perfect and sinless. It is to say that once you become a Christian, you will never again be content to remain in your sin. You will actively fight against your sin through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. You will put that sin to death. You will mortify it along with your pride. And so we see here, brothers and sisters, repentance is required to enter the Christian life, but also repentance is something that will characterize the Christian life as a whole. The Christian life is ongoing renunciation of sin as we grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord and as we walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. Took seven years out in the field for Nebuchadnezzar to be sufficiently humbled. But in verse 34, we read the glorious moment of his conversion. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. My reason returned to me. I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. How beautiful to see here that Nebuchadnezzar's ordeal ends in the moment when he takes his eyes off of himself and fixes his gaze upon God, looking to him alone for the grace and mercy that he so desperately needs. This is what we often call faith. Faith is is merely the flip side of repentance. Through repentance, we turn away from our sin. And through faith, we turn towards Jesus Christ and embrace him as Savior and Lord. And when we put these two spirit-enabled actions together, the turning away from sin and the turning towards Jesus Christ, what we have is true conversion. A brand new creation in Christ Jesus, as we read in 2 Corinthians, that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. By examining Nebuchadnezzar's testimony this morning, we've seen the precursors to repentance. We have seen the process of repentance. Now, thirdly and finally, we come to the proof of repentance at the beginning and the end of the chapter. This chapter begins on a note of praise and this chapter ends on a note of praise. And even though some scholars doubt whether King Nebuchadnezzar was truly converted, I am of the opinion that he was. And that the statements he makes about God at the beginning and the end of the chapter provide compelling evidence of a life and a heart that has been transformed by grace. Notice first of all here, Nebuchadnezzar's letter is addressed to all peoples, languages, and nations. And I hope that phrase by now reminds you of something. It ought to bring you straight back to chapter 3 and the worship service that Nebuchadnezzar organized around his statue. Remember back in chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar was trying to unite the nations under his own authority and kingship. But now in chapter 4, the same king is calling on the nations to unite under the authority of the Most High God. This is a drastic change of allegiance to say the least. We also see through the two poems that bookend the chapter that Nebuchadnezzar is now willing and eager to affirm the everlasting nature of God's kingdom and even to rejoice in that fact. More evidence that he is now living in submission to the one true God. There are many hints and clues in these verses that Nebuchadnezzar is a man who's been humbled. His life has been transformed. There's a willingness to submit to God's authority. There's a new desire to worship and to praise God. There is a new zeal to make God's name glorious among the nations and people of earth. All of these things are strong indicators of genuine repentance. And it's for this reason that I believe the king was truly converted near the end of his life and that one day I will see him in the kingdom of God along with Daniel and his three friends. 
Without question, Nebuchadnezzar is one of the most unlikely converts in the Bible. And this amazing chapter reminds me and encourages me that God can save anyone He wants, even the people that we least expect. Daniel never gave up in his ministry to King Nebuchadnezzar. Neither should we give up on the people God has sovereignly brought into our lives, praying diligently for their their conversion, taking every opportunity we can to share the good news in all of its fullness. And if you're here this morning and you have never repented of sin, if you have never given your life over to Jesus Christ, the invitation stands open to you today as it did to Nebuchadnezzar long ago. And God says to you, come, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as wool. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Cast yourself fully on the mercy and grace of Christ. Turn away from your sin and your pride. Cling tightly to the cross of Calvary. And you too can sing with the rest of God's redeemed people. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Amen.